I always say the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is kind of compassion and empathy for people who deserve it. They've had some challenging experience in their life. And grace is the ability to actually care for people who perhaps don't show up in ways that allow you to uh, make an easier argument about why you should care for them as well. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Get to Work from Red F Workshop. This podcast features Red F's president and CEO, Carlo Javits, in conversation with thought leaders and innovators who are making a difference in our communities. This episode, she's in conversation with Chet Hewitt. Chet has more than 25 years' experience working in the public and nonprofit sectors and has served as the president and CEO of Sierra Health Foundation since September 2007. During his tenure at Sierra Health, Chet has been credited with increasing the foundation's impact by establishing new mission-driven grant programs and creating local, state, and national partnerships. Chet also sits on Red F's board of directors. This conversation was recorded live at Red F's offices in San Francisco, so there is some background noise, but we think it's still a great conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get to work. Welcome, everybody. I'm very excited for our fireside chat today. And as you all know, uh, we're here today to talk to uh, Chet Hewitt. Um, Chet joined the Red F board in 2011. Uh, he has more than 25 years of experience <laughs> working in the public and nonprofit sectors. Uh, he's truly a kind of a multi-sector guy, which is something I really admire about you, Chet, and have really enjoyed uh, learning from. Uh, you've been the president and CEO of the Sierra Health Foundation since September of 2007. Uh, and before that, uh, Chet spent five years as the director of the Alameda County Human Service Agency, so that's on the public sector side. And then he was associate director of the Rockefeller Foundation and worked with uh, Julia Lopez, who was a former member of the Red F Board. Yeah, so it's a nice, nice set of connections. Um, he's received many awards. He sits on a lot of other boards. Uh, Chet and I share the fact that we both grew up in New York City. And uh, for those of you who read the article that I mentioned, uh, you read a little bit about his life in New York, which he uh, credits to some extent with why, you know, your interest in the Red F Board, and, and uh, I've really appreciated that. Uh, and Chet has two sons and is very involved in their lives. We got to meet one of them a couple of years ago, so that was great. Um, so Chet, you know, maybe just to start, uh, can you just give us a sense of, like, what is it uh, in your life that you think led you to the work that you do now in philanthropy and at Sierra Health? I think there were t uh, a couple of things. Uh, you think about you know, the kind of totality of your life experiences and you know, the formative experiences and years in one's life and the stories that you carry forward from those particular experiences, the things that kind of live with you uh, beyond the experience uh, itself. And uh, I think a few seminal ones for me. And one, you know, I grew up in a community that was not wealthy, uh, but, you know, had a, you know, great infrastructure and set of connections, kind of networks that were really helpful uh, to the folks who lived there. This is during the times when the economy was better and, you know, most uh, parents and friends I had got jobs because they knew people who were working, not because they went to ads or to employment agencies or anything like that. And it kind of mitigated the fact that we weren't kind of a wealthy community. And it was, you know, I think about it you know, all these years later, you realize how important those social networks really were to one's ability to kind of craft a life uh, with opportunity, possibility for themselves. Uh, I, I think the second thing was, you know, the level of grace that people in the community have. I always say the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is kind of compassion and empathy for people who deserve it. They've had some 
you know, challenging experience in their life. And grace is the ability to actually care for people who perhaps uh, don't show up in ways that allow you to uh, make an easier argument about why you should care for them as well. And there's a story in my life that is really important about two uh, gentlemen, because many of you know if you read the article, uh, you know, I finished high school uh, at Rikers Island. I graduated from high school uh, from the prison. I was 16 years old, so I was incarcerated with adults. And was a young man who uh, found himself in a lot of challenges in his neighborhood and actually lived through those challenges pretty well because I didn't really think I had too many problems. You know, people used to come to me and say, well, you know, how are things going? Like, it's all good. <laughs> you know, I'm home, <laughs> you know, got my partners and, and so forth. And then two, two individuals, uh, Wayne Derrick and Richard Finelli, never forget their names, uh, came up to me after the last time I came home. I was probably about 18. They said, uh, Chet, you know, we know you're really a smart kid, despite, you know, all the stuff that you're engaged in. And they said, we have something for you. And I, I remember saying to them, you know, well, you know I'm good. Uh, everything's good. I said, well, what do, you, what do you have? They said, a job. I said, a job? And we had this conversation where uh, they said to me, uh, you know, we want you to do this work. It was, I'm a CETA baby. It was a CETA job. And if you know your history around employment, the old Civilian Employment Training Act, right? you worked for 18 months and it was subsidized uh, for you. Um, and um, they, they offered me this job. And I remember saying to them, well, you know, why don't you give it to Lenny? Lenny was a good friend of mine who was going <laughs> to school and doing all the right things and, and so forth. And he says, you know, Lenny deserves it, but you need it. You need it. And that's what I mean about grace. Because those two men, one who was a custodian in a public school and one who ran a local YMCA, saw enough in that young person, myself, uh, to know that I needed one of those seminal moments and a transformation and that giving me an opportunity that I probably did not deserve, given all the other young people who lived in that neighborhood, uh, that they would make it available to me. And I, in some ways, I've been trying to pay that forward uh, for the rest uh, of my life. And, over the course uh, of my career. And then I think the third piece of this uh, for me really was about my family. Uh, you know, uh, I'm one of eight kids, uh, grew up in public housing. Um, um, my, my dad died when I was relatively young. Um, and I watched my mom struggle mightily uh, to raise her eight kids and did a very, very good job. I was the only one who was ever in trouble. I don't know if that <laughs> makes me special or just <laughs> makes me a problem child. You know, you could define it however you want to. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that that role model, you know, uh, of really being willing to struggle and work hard uh, despite all the challenges that, you know, life presented to all of us uh, was really, really important uh, for me. So, Well, thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, there's so many uh, personal factors, I think, that, you know, fundamentally are the underpinning for why many of us, you know, do the kind of work that we do. Uh, I wonder... You know, so now, today, you're working at the Sierra Health Foundation, and I know you've been, you know, a real leader, for example, on social determinants of health, thinking more about that, uh, and a number of other things. So can you just share with us a little bit about, uh, you know, why the position at Sierra Health, what you're trying to do there, what your priorities and focus are there, what some of your accomplishments? You know, I, I, uh, Sierra Health is, what I like to call it a modest-sized foundation. It's a small foundation, but modest just seems to sound better. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always say, and I really do believe this, as someone who's worked in and out philanthropy three, three times, um, that, you know, the power and importance of a foundation isn't the size of its corpus. It's really the power of its ideas and its willingness to commit to something and see it through. 
Because um, I've been at large foundations who spent a lot of money that did less than it possibly could have. Uh, and I've been at smaller places that have done some extraordinary things as well. We may not hear about them as much, but you know, I try to manage the foundation uh, in that way. The other thing I would say is that for me, coming to the foundation is not so much about the job, you know, because this is my vocation. You know, this is what I did. This is what I did when I was at the Center on Criminal Justice here in San Francisco or Grand Alameda County, um, Social Service Agency. I, you know, it's always been about the experiences you bring to the work uh, and about your commitment, your passion for serving folks uh, who, who, whose lives are often not as good as yours is at this particular point in time. You know? um, and so for me, I bring that to the foundation. It is, a, it is the next iteration uh, of that professional journey that I've been on uh, for the past 30 plus years and now. And so when, when I was offered the opportunity, um, uh, jumped on it, it was great to be moving back out of public service. And for me, being in public service and, and being uh, moving in and out of public service has been an important part of my career uh, because I like to retreat to the space where real ideas and, and ability to kind of drive change is very, very different. And I hold in you know, very high regard those who work in, in the public sector who have a, a different set of challenges of, of doing that. And, and I'll tell you the obstacles in those different environments are really, really quite, you know, quite different. So it's a good balance for me to kind of retreat back to the space where ideas and expectation and really trying to push the envelope far um, is, is the expectation. And that was the expectation they had for me um, upon my appointment at Sierra Health. And, and we have been no leaders, despite our modest, modest size, around the social determinants of health uh, and what that actually means. Uh, because only 15% of your health has anything to do with your ability to get health care. 85% of your health is about all the other things that happen to you in your life. And as a healthcare foundation, a health conversion foundation, we have been very focused over my 12 years there on those other things. Uh, so employment is a big part of it. And we know, if you've seen the Whitehall studies and others, the impact that employment actually has on the health status of individuals. If you ever read the, one of the great books like William Jewis Wilson, When Truly Disadvantaged, When Work Disappears, that chronicles over 20 years of history in Chicago when, when the economy changes and people get left behind and the kind of challenges that really show up uh, for folks uh, in their lives. And so we have really targeted the foundation's work and efforts on populations and communities, so people and places in need, uh, and we have sought to, you know, help uh, kind of catalyze interventions or scale up interventions that really do, uh, I think, address the conditions under which people live, the opportunity structures that are available uh, to folks. Can you, I, I was wondering if you can just tell us, you know, the uh, geography for the Sierra Health Foundation, where you focus, and then maybe just an example of something you feel good about or proud of that, you know, you've done while you've been there. We started with 26 counties in Northern California, but in uh, 2013, we actually adopted uh, eight more counties into the Central Valley, and that was just because the data said that's where we really needed to be. That's where we should uh, be investing. The, the population size was part of that, but also the level of disparities in California. I mean, it is, it is the area where there are really, we really see the two Californias present themselves. Uh, and so that was kind of a big victory for us because I said we were a modest-sized foundation and simply taking on more challenge and more geography isn't always kind of the best calculus. But if you are committed to outcomes, then the things that typically would dissuade you from doing that are less important. So we weren't as concerned about how thinly our money would be spread if we took on more counties. What we're more interested in is can we really help facilitate change? 
I often say to folks, and if you've seen on online our video, we say at Sierra Health that we're less concerned about how long we're around and we're more concerned about what we've achieved. Right? So that's kind of our orientation around for And it's a little bit different than, than many foundations. I'd all, I think that one of the things that I'm probably, and there's a number of things, but one of the things I'm really proud of is our San Joaquin Valley Health Fund. Um, we knew around some of the social and economic disparities uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, we adopted those eight counties. Um, we didn't have an enormous amount of resources uh, to spend, and so we built a partnership called the San Joaquin Valley Health Fund. Now with 23 different foundations who are part of it, and started out with just ourselves, small foundation, put some resources on the table, quickly followed by the California uh, Endowment. Uh, and over the past uh, five years, we've raised close to about $13 million where we've been kind of seeding uh, policy change uh, across the valley as well, focus on what we call our iHeal uh, framework. So immigration, health, housing, uh, education, uh, environment, and land use and planning. Uh, because all of those things have an impact on your health. Some, some folks say to me, well, how does land use and planning fit into a health agenda? Well, if you don't have safe places to walk and play, people don't go outside. And if kids don't go outside to play, then you have issues around obesity, which ultimately translate into issues around other uh, types of uh, illnesses, uh, including diabetes. Right? So the best way we could uh, address the diabetes impact uh, 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 epidemic in, in America is for folks to exercise for 30 minutes more and uh, lose about 30 pounds. And, and that would be the best intervention we can do. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a pill. It's not a clinical intervention. Uh, it's really a social intervention. And so we've, we've worked uh, uh, in that space to do those kind of things in communities. As you well know at Red F, we tend to be very focused on you know, metrics and outcomes. And so I guess when you think about that, that example uh, of work, which is really, uh, really inspiring work, I can imagine sort of maybe the, in the long haul, you know, the impacts you'd want to see, better community and, you know, healthier community, et cetera. But I guess how do you, how do you know if you're moving the needle? What are the in intermediate <laughs> results that you're looking for so you have a sense that you're making progress in the right way? Well, for us, you know, uh, one out of every four schools in Central Valley, you can't drink the water because it's contaminated. Mm -hmm. We'd like to see that change. That would be a great metric for folks. Um, you know, many of the advocates that we worked with, you know, supported the governor's signing of the water bill. And if, you know, not having fresh water delivered that you can drink to your house is not only a health issue, it's an economic issue. Uh, some families pay up to 10% of their income buying water that you can drink, right? So for us, you know, it's, you know, seeing the kind of policy environment change and now leaning in hard on the implementation of those particular changes in policy uh, with the understanding that, you know, those numbers, uh, like the numbers of school, the kids, number of kids uh, exposed to pesticide overspray because you shouldn't build a school next to an agricultural field. That's why land use and planning is really important. Those things really do matter for the health of Californians. And so when, when we measure things, uh, it's, you know, sometimes a longer window. Uh, we try to see of ourselves as risk capital that has a, a level of patience associated, uh, associated with it. 
although I, I'm, I'm fond of saying that patience is a privilege, is for the privilege, so we want to move as quickly as we possibly can. But some of the structural inequities in society are deeply rooted and are simply amenable to like very quick solutions. So, uh, you know, steal a phrase from John Wooden, you got to be quick but don't hurry. Um, uh, and you have to be patient but not overly so um, when it comes to addressing the uh, effects of poverty and what it really means in communities. Yeah, it sounds like some very fundamental practical changes on the ground and then also changing the policy okay. environment. Uh, I'm always struck, you know, when we talk about California, uh, learning about just a statistic like that. I mean, it's so shocking and about the water, you know, but it, it's such a big state, you don't necessarily know that, especially if you're sitting here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I remember uh, there's a human development report that looks at, you know, health and income and uh, educational status. And seeing when they looked at the whole United States, I think, I think the third kind of most uh, biggest pocket of poverty in the United States is in the Central Valley of California. The, uh, the uh, Fed Reserve uh, coined the term the Appalachia of the West yeah. uh, because of the extreme poverty, particularly in the unincorporated areas. In our water work, we actually had a foundation who joined us from Florida. Uh, whose president could not believe that the issues around water that we described were were factual in California. She said, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, great wealth, billionaires, check, this can't be true. Yeah. And uh, I don't think she was accusing me of lying, <laughs> although it did feel a little bit like that. Uh, but she actually came. She flew from Florida and came to California. And I think she was shocked at what she saw. You know, as yeah. she traversed the streets. I think it was, you know, uh, alarming, yeah. but, you know, also really surprising because, you know, you, you, there's so many places along the coastal corridor that do so extraordinarily well. Right. And there are so many communities up and down that 99.5 spine that, that, that uh, are not having that experience. Yeah. Um, in addition to the uh, social determinants of health and the focus you've had there in Central Valley, you know, I know one thing you've been really dedicated to is the work around boys and men of color. Uh, and I think it started to some extent during the Obama effort around My Brother's Keeper, and then it, it morphed into a much larger, you know, national effort. Uh, so I just wonder, can you share a little bit with us about that, what you're working on today, what that looks like, uh, and maybe what your aspirations are for that work? Well, it's a short story. I mean, one you can only look at me and you can tell why. And you know my story. It's, it's an interest. It's kind of my, my journey. Uh, and folks are, you know, often say, well, you know, it's, you're so incredible. You know, we know your story. You know, on the law school, no undergraduate degree. How do you do all that? You know, you're so uh, unusual. And I say, no, I'm just an example of all the talent we leave behind in communities. That's what I really am. Because you know? I think there is a lot of richness in those places that simply aren't cultivated. And they don't have the Richard Finelli and Wayne Derrick to express the level of grace that was expressed to me. That was just good fortune. But if you were to say to me, is it somehow somewhat unique as an individual, I would say I don't believe that to be the case. So I was invited by President Obama to the White House when he announced uh, his uh, My Brother's Keeper initiative and had been participating in a, a group of foundations across the country uh, in the Executive Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. Um, and, you know, was really moved that we, we would be able to have what I consider to be a real 
honest conversation about inequity and inequality and uh, the maldistribution of opportunity uh, in the country and, and really try to figure out how to do something about it, not just to talk about it. There's lots of you know, literature and research, but what would you really do about it? Um, and then when I, you heard the stories from across the country, uh, what you realized, or what I realized, um, or come to believe, was that you know, different uh, regions of the country were in very, very different places uh, relative to addressing this particular question. Um, and so uh, came back from that meeting and, uh, and uh, sat with some colleagues, and we founded uh, California Funders for Boys and Men of Color, associated with the national effort associated with uh, President Obama's you know, work, uh, but to just simply do something really focused on California. And I think some of the, uh, uh, the reason behind that, because California was then in, involved in you know, serious uh, criminal justice reform in ways they weren't talking about it in Mississippi. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we were having you know, serious conversations about education reform, including things like the eliminations of suspension and expulsion for kids uh, under the age of five, which it's a hard thing to really grasp that we didn't be engaged in that kind of work. Um, and so you know, we would try to figure out how to make California kind of a catalyst, a leader for the types of changes, uh, both policy and practice changes, that other jurisdictions could adopt uh, as well. Um, and that has now grown to about 18 foundations who are working uh, together uh, in three different regions. Uh, Southern California uh, Regional Action Committee, which is focused on juvenile justice reform, and there's some great stuff happening in Los Angeles that, you know, if you're really interested to take a look at, that has real employment, because the idea is to take that system, which should be rehabilitative, and has really, had really fallen to a position where it was much more about punishment, and to have juvenile justice be what it was always supposed to be, and that is a developmental system for kids who got into trouble, not a punishment system. And so that is now central to the conversation taking place across the country. And LA is doing some fab fabulous work. And one of the things they're really looking at is employment, right? The opportunity to work, youth employment programs, sometimes your first exposure to the labor market, uh, and how you make that part of a broader set of supports for young people. There is the uh, 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 Northern California RAC, which is based here uh, in the Bay Area, uh, centered in Oakland which has employment as its explicit focus. And we've had a, a couple of pretty successful employment um, efforts uh, here where young men have actually showed up and been interviewed and actually got jobs. And then in uh, the central region focusing on higher education uh, where we have thousands of kids in mentorships to get to and through uh, college, uh, whether that's community college or some vocational training program, but also around four-year degrees. Uh, as well. So touching the lives of thousands of, uh, of young people, both a policy and practice agenda, um, because we did, we were successful with some of the school discipline, you know, work that removed the ability to suspend kids for willful defiance and things like that in, in school uh, districts. So that, that is ongoing work. Three, uh, five communities in California now have been uh, designated official My Brother's Keeper sites by the now Obama Foundation. Uh, we are one of those uh, uh, grantees, uh, the site in the Bay Area as well as one in L.A., and then Richmond and Fresno would be the other two that round out the state. So of the 20 sites across the country, five are actually in California. And we think that we uh, helped uh, achieve that, and the we being the collective we is uh, 
California funders for boys and men of color because, you know, getting out early and trying to do good work uh, and addressing tough issues, I think, uh, led the Obama Foundation to see us as an example of what's really possible. Yeah, really crucial work. It's very exciting to, to hear what you've been able to accomplish. I guess I was wondering, when I think about the coalition of uh, foundations you put together in San Joaquin Valley, and then this coalition around boys and men of color, uh, I was wondering what what do you think uh, caused these foundations to to get on board and work together? Because I think one of the things you know we see in the foundation community is a lot of fragmentation. Uh, everybody's got their own agenda, the new strategy every two years, and you know it's very hard to get people to focus together on a single set of initiatives. And I, I just wonder what you think the formula was or what went into that or, you know, how did that happen? Because it's notable that you've done that in two cases. Yeah, you know, we're working with, you know, uh, probably 45 different foundations through those funds. And we've, we've done it for years. I mean, San Joaquin Valley Health Fund, which is still growing. Uh, last year, I think we had 19 funders. We're now, I think, 23. So folks keep coming to the table. And we've been doing it for six years. Um, you know, you're right. It, it's you know, it's it's hard for us in this sector to collaborate as effectively as we would like. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but mm -hmm. it's hard, particularly when you have 23 CEOs or 23 groups uh, uh, looking to work together. But you know, we've tried to manage uh, uh, that portfolio, those portfolios, uh, like if I was managing an uh, investment fund. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, our goal is to make it simple for people to invest. Uh, to be focused on a broad enough range of topics. That's why our IHEAL framework, where they can see themselves in the work. Uh, uh, and to deal with all the back office and operational issues that often make it difficult for foundations to stay engaged in a broader number of efforts. Because they tend to, within the, re the limitations of their human capital, try to focus on a few key issues. And I don't know that it's disinterest in other things. It's could you invest in them and be effective? And so we're going to manage their investments, just like if I was managing your investments and you had some expectations on a, a return on capital on that particular investment as well. Uh, we're going to help report back in a streamlined uh, way. Um, and we're going to give you the infrastructure to get to the most difficult communities uh, that uh, you could possibly invest in. And a lot of times, foundations you know, challenged by going to some of the communities that we have been focusing on because there's not a lot of infrastructure there. You know, you're not going to find a high-performing nonprofit, right? You're going to find some emerging group that might be struggling. You know, not, they're not going to have the best financial reporting systems. So if you do your due diligence, they're not going to kind of pass some threshold. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be risk capital on the front end uh, as a foundation, and we're going to start building some of that capacity in groups to get other foundations to have sufficient confidence to want to invest in that particular fund. And so I think there, there's two things here. The upside is there's a rationale for that not happening, and I'm not trying to defend it or anything else, and let, or let others do that. Uh, there's also an opportunity, and we've tried to see opportunities in challenges, mm -hmm. not just the obstructions that they often present uh, to groups uh, as well. And I think that the, our, our partners have appreciated that. And I'd give them credit for stepping up and continuing to invest, you know, over the past uh, five uh, or six years. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe because of your success in doing that, uh, I know fairly recently uh, Mayor Steinberg uh, has approached the foundation to be involved in a big initiative in Sacramento. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, because we've known each other for a long time, that you know I, I come out of community organizing first and foremost. So being an advocate is always really important. At the foundation, we founded the Center at Sierra Health, which is our kind of operational arm. And it's one of the structures we built to, to make it uh, easier for foundations to invest, because foundations don't like to give the foundations. It's just not what they like to do. So we, we built an infrastructure for them to, to actually do that. Within that infrastructure, we have what we call the, you know, if you know the nonprofit world, NH designation, so we can actually <coughs> lobby. Uh, and as people think nonprofits can't lobby, that's actually not true. Uh, there are limitations on that, and so we are kind of an activist uh, in that space, thoughtful activism. So uh, an opportunity presented itself in Sacramento to deal with kind of income inequality uh, that was really came out of the tragedy of Stefan Clark's death. And if, you know, that was kind of national news for Sacramento. And the city, you know, was, was really traumatized by that because, you know, Sacramento gets a lot of attention usually for what happens in legislature, not usually for this kind of, you know, violence in the way that it showed up. And our mayor, Daryl Steinberg, uh, former Senate pro tem, uh, you know, long-term politician in California, wanted to try to figure out how to address some of the issues that had arisen out of that experience. Because if you, if you looked at the protests carefully, it was not, people were not simply calling for police reform. You know, if you looked at some of the signs, there was like, we want jobs. You know, Stefan Clark needed a job. Uh, there were signs like, you know, rent is too high. Where are we going? A lot of young people really expressing a lot of frustration about what was happening in the city, which was, in many ways, uh, going through a real renaissance. You know, new arena downtown, soccer stadiums, new homes being built, but you know, really beyond the reach of, uh, of many folks who had lived in Sacramento and seen it as a kind of lower cost alternative to the Bay Area for many, many years, and now seeing that you know, really slip away. And the mayor decided that, uh, that he was going to do something bold. He was going to do a big, inclusive economic uh, uh, effort. And there was a, uh, he put on the a ballot a, a half-cent sales tax. It was an extension of, a, uh, of an existing half-cent sales, like it was supposed to sunset, but the inclusion of another half-cent that would generate about $50 million a year that he would dedicate it towards uh, inclusive economic development. Right? And uh, uh, the mayor pushed hard, and I give him a lot of credit for this because he got a lot of flack uh, from folks who said, you know, taxes are regressive and poor will be disproportionately impacted. But it's interesting because I, I had a conversation with a community uh, uh, activist who uh, at an uh, event where we talked about it. And I remember Mother saying to me, uh, and this is relevant to, to our work, she said, I would rather pay a half cent additional on sales tax jet if you could tell me and ensure me that you would help my son get a job because it's better for me to pay it this way than to be trying to raise bail money. <laughs> that, that, was, that was her analysis about why she saw it as an investment um, in, a, in a more hopeful future. Uh, and so we were able to get uh, it passed. Um, we, uh, after a lot of debate, because it's interesting, uh, all the sides that opposed it after it passed uh, had a plan for how to spend the money. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? Uh, and, and a lot of folks showed up and said they wanted to do, you know, unfunded pension liabilities. Now we're going to get paid off. And I mean, all kinds of things showed up, you know, raises for employees. And so the inclusive piece just started drifting into the background. 
which is what what the big concern uh, of the community. And so we mobilized folks and you know pushed back hard and finally got the city uh, council to vote 9-0 that it would securitize up to $275 million of that initial money and exclusively dedicated for inclusive economic development in communities. So we're looking at starting uh, employment social enterprises. Uh, we have launched a few uh, test sites, some uh, Oh, small scale, but really interesting. We have one community that's building actually a series of baseball fields in uh, uh, this invested in community because their, their target is going to be traveling sports, which is a $20 billion industry, particularly Little League Baseball. Um, and they're building out a whole facility, three baseball fields, two uh, softball uh, fields, because that's what young women play, and soccer fields. Uh, and the infrastructure and architecture around it to actually house and feed people who would actually show up. I would say this, that there is, and maybe it proves my earlier point. In these neighborhoods, there's no shortage of talent. There's no shortage of ideas. What's often you know, missing is the knowledge to carry them forward, right, and to go around the technical pieces uh, and, and investment. Uh, and so our work with the mayor is about taking those two kind of missing components uh, or weaker components, because I'm not saying they don't exist at all, and strengthening so that those particular activities um, uh, will not be kind of obstructions to the, the hope for you know future that many of these communities actually have. So we're we're at the front end of this particular process. Um, I think about 16 million dollars of investments have been made uh, thus far uh, in the process of securitizing the first 125 million dollars uh, to get this done. Uh, and we're preparing to take on whoever shows up next to claim this year of the resource, because I don't think that was a one-off uh, endeavor uh, to make sure that those uh, communities that have been underinvested in uh, at this point, in this time, you know, get access to the wealth. Uh, no need to kind of change the conditions under which they live. You've had a, a serious influence, you know, locally there, regionally, statewide, nationally, I think through a, a lot of the work you've done, and a big influence at Red F. Uh, we really thank you for, you know, being part of our board. Uh, as you know, we're trying to look to the future. And we know that the core of our work, if you, if you think of it in sort of market terms, supply and demand, you know, the core of our work is really around the supply, right? We're trying to build the capability uh, side by side with wonderful organizations to provide jobs and support to people who really need them. And we're, we're pretty good at that. We've been doing that for, you know, a couple of decades now. What we're trying to think about is what can we do to stimulate more demand for this approach? Because we've seen through the data and evidence that it works and has some sustainability and really has an impact uh, on the lives of people who are often left out of the workforce system as we know it. Uh, so I just wondered if you have any thoughts as we look ahead. Uh, the obvious points of influence might be government or uh, companies, uh, the employment, employer community, uh, even philanthropy. You know, when you think about it, are there certain, you know, kind of lever points that seem like ripe for uh, Red F to get involved with so that as we're building this capability across the country, uh, hopefully over time, communities begin to demand this. Uh, and so, 
you know, kind of a virtuous circle starts and we're able to really uh, get to scale. Interesting question. And I think there are multiple things to do, many of which you already mentioned. I think, you know, conversations with uh, political leadership is uh, really essential and you know, tying the work in with uh, issues and initiatives that uh, are currently being pushed forward. You don't have to always start something new. Sometimes you can build off some momentum that already exists. And you know, one example is Regions Rise Together, which is coming out of the governor's office, um, where what's happening in the inland part of California is uh, being put at the center of the table uh, in terms of you know, how do you stimulate, you know, economies and give people opportunities to engage in the workforce uh, in some of the poorest, most disadvantaged areas of, of the state as well. And clearly the work that's being done here is a potential innovation. One of a number of things that need to happen for folks as well, particularly for folks who have been, who have had a long-term dislocation from the workforce. Because how do you enter? And, and one of the most powerful things, and you all know this, is to have some recent work experience and a network of folks who can help guide you towards your next opportunity. Right? And if you've been out of that space for a long time, it's, it's more challenging than people think to actually get back into that. Particularly when people, you know, uh, when the, when the, when the uh, health effects of that show up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it's, and the health effects are, 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 are very, very powerful. Uh, you've probably heard the term death by despair. Right? And this comes out of largely kind of the opioid crisis, but which is associated with the lack of employment opportunities you know, in, in, in the eastern part of, of the country, but it is actually shortening the lifespans of people. Uh, and the initial move into that particular space around substance abuse and others was dislocation from the labor market. Right? It's the number one reason that's shortening the lives of white males in America who, for the first time, um, and we, that we can be going to capture are uh, actually uh, likely to live shorter lifespans. So th this is real stuff. The health effects associated are real. So I think that you know, joining on to those type of efforts uh, is really, really important. For us, the demand side thing is really, really interesting because we experienced this in one of our efforts uh, around uh, juvenile justice reform where we initially worked with a lot of public sector entities who've done some you know, fabulous work and got to a point where it was hard to move forward. And we actually pivoted and moved to what I call demand side uh, um, uh, investments. And that is to kind of build kind of communities of support, or what we would call constituency building, for the ideas themselves. And these are not often the nonprofits and the, and the political and public groups that you actually work with. It's the mother who told me she'd rather you know, see a slight tax increase because she understood that if managed well, it would have an impact on the lives of, of her boys. Now, that was her interest, right? She didn't claim that she knew how to do it. But she did say she was willing to invest in that particular possibility. And, uh, you know, for, for those of us who have been around policy for a long time, we know that good ideas is not enough. You know, even real impacts that you can measure is not enough. You know, I've seen great, you know, uh, projects die on the vine. Uh, because there wasn't enough political courage and will to take it up and finance it at that scale, right? I always say my shelves are full of reports that could potentially change conditions in this country that nobody really wants to push forward. Good shelf material, as we would call it, right? Uh, I think ultimately there has to be kind of public demand for good policy and good ideas uh, if they're going to move to scale. And I think it's, it's something, and you know, it's, it's 
know, Red F is, is structured in, in some unique ways. There's always some risk with doing that. And I don't even know that uh, Red F would have to do that itself. But I think being associated with groups who are really on that demand side, who understand your business better, um, understand the potential uh, positive effects it can have in communities that they're really concerned about, uh, would be an important, a uh, very important uh, next step uh, in the growth uh, and impact of uh, of Red X actually work. Uh, I was to say this, and you know, I am a bachelor. I talk about Red F uh, a lot. I, I you know, Carla's ears are probably burning every day because I'm, uh, I'm I'm telling her name. I'm I'm an acolyte for this particular uh, you know work uh, from my personal journey and personal experiences, uh, but of course you know my knowledge of the work that you're all involved in as well. I wish more people understood exactly what you're doing and how powerful an impact it can actually have on the lives of, of the folks who are touched by the work. I'm always knocked out by, you know, the, the passion and humanity you bring to this, uh, a focus on the practical, mm -hmm. but at the same time this longer horizon that requires bigger systems change and uh, just learned so much from that over the years. So, well, thank you for your inspirational leadership and please join me in thanking Chet for being with us. Thanks everybody for listening to Let's Get to Work. To access all of our content and resources to help you grow your business and increase the impact of your employment social enterprise, head over to redfworkshop.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and subscribing. That'll help new listeners discover the show. Stay tuned for a new episode next month. Until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.